are we the optimal people to talk about this? Oh God, how long have we just been figuring this out? Are you a busy Ruby developer who wants to take their freelance business to the next level? Interested in working smarter, not harder? Then check out the upcoming book, Next Level Freelancing, Developer Edition. Practical steps to work less, travel more, and make more money. It includes interviews and case studies with successful freelancers who have made a killing by expanding their consultancy, developed passive income through informational products, built successful SaaS products, and become rockstar consultants making a minimum of $200 an hour. There are all kinds of practical steps on getting started, and if you sign up now, you'll get 50% off when it's released. You can find it at nextlevelfreelancing.com. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Hi, and welcome to the Ruby Freelancers Podcast. Um, I'm your temporary host in lieu of Chuck Wood being here. This is Evan Light, and today I've got here Eric Davis. Hey. Jeff Schoolcraft. What's up? Jim Gay. Jim Gay? Yeah, I'm here. Okay, cool. Thank you. The, that mute button isn't working like I thought it would. <laughs> nice, and that's already in the recording. And today we're going to talk about managing client expectations. So, who wants to get started? The first thing that comes to mind for me with managing client expectations is an experience that I had on a project where um, we were in crunch mode right from the start of the project. It was a rescue project, and you know it was terrible code and and the project manager was agreeing to his superiors that we would get x y and z launched by a certain date and then would come and tell us the date and that's always a recipe for disaster um and uh we had a new developer come onto the project he had been there like I think he came on on Friday and we had to do work over the weekend. So he, like his first start on the project was over the weekend, Monday morning. You know, we missed the deadline, of course, because things weren't working right. Um, and he, the project manager came in, we were doing our stand-up meeting Monday morning. And the first thing out of his mouth was, you guys are killing me. And uh, it totally killed our morale. Um, so right from the get-go, we all had to kind of put our heads together and figure out, all right, well, how are we going to work with this person who clearly has uh, a misunderstanding of what can be done on on the project or with the development team? And um, So that was a challenge right from the get-go for me. In my experience, um, having worked in a lot of government contracts before I went freelance, so many clients start with a delivery date and then they give you the features and then they give you the budget and they say, Oh, and by the way, none of it can change, which doesn't work. And, um, I'm sure that some of you guys have, or all of you guys have heard of that little pyramid where you've got the, what cost performance and schedule and you can pick two, but you can't pick the third. And it seems yeah. like clients and managers are always trying to pick all three. The iron triangle. Yeah, I think yeah. it's a pyramid with Agile because they add quality in or something like that. Hmm. Okay. Well, it's the idea. Like, you can have something cheap really quickly and with all the features you want, but it's going to be really crappy code. Yep. And I think it's Agile was the first one that talked about, like, that's a point on whatever, the the thing that you can't be changing or you can't change very much because it will affect everything later. And Anyways, tangent. 
Yeah, I was going to say, I, I was going to comment on it, and I realized it's not quite relevant to managing client expectations. Well, so, my approach with the particular scenario that I was in, you know, I was the lead on the team, and I went, you know, in a private conversation, went to the manager and said, look, I don't, you know, we're not going to have the ability to keep developers on this team if if they're treated that way. You know, that you got to recognize uh, the effort that's being put in um, and all the good things that we did do. And, uh, you know, it's when you find a bad manager like that who is always looking at the next wrong thing, it's really difficult to get them to change their perspective. It's certainly worth the effort to try to do it. But um, once I pointed out that developers might leave, it sort of made him rethink. It didn't really change things except in the short term, <laughs> unfortunately. But, you know, the the threat of people deciding to leave the project was never had never really crossed his mind. So good management, I think, I guess is is rarer than I would like it to be. So that's describing uh, we're talking about a situation uh, for a project that's been around for a bit. What about for new projects? Because when, whenever any of us get a new client, we all spend – well, I assume we all spend some amount of time trying to establish expectations, right? Yeah. So does anyone want to elaborate on that? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm, I'm curious. Eric agrees. Don't ask a yes or no question. No! I fail as a moderator. I'm fired. <laughs> I think, um, uh, you know, sitting down and looking at what are all the things that we want to get done, what, you know, and, and getting someone to prioritize is is often a difficult task, especially for those people who don't want to prioritize. You know, when they yep. have everything is in the critical bucket, Yep. Um, you know, how I'm curious about how others have, have, you know, explained to people, to their clients or potential clients, you cannot do everything and that you've got to. Uh, relent on some features that you can ship some quality stuff. Well, I actually what, go ahead, Eric. I was saying like, for when I when someone first contacts me, like the first thing I try to do is get their expectations of schedule and budget. I mean, most of the time those are fixed, and like schedules typically from an outside. Like, say there's a marketing launch they have to hit, and budget is depending on who you talk to, it could be set you know above the person you're talking with. So those are like usually the hard lines like these aren't going to change i try to get that up front so it's like i know what i'm working with and even just for me like i've had some clients saying yeah we need you know 40 80 hours of work done by next week and i'm like that won't happen i'm only one person you're going to talk to someone else and i can just send that person or send that client away right away um once i get that that's when i start digging into like the features and like you know kind of the more nitty-gritty so it's almost like a, a top top-down type method for me and you know yeah like figuring out like what bucket these features go in i can almost always i try to refer back to their costs and say like yeah like if you want all of these things in the critical bucket that's fine but we now have to bump up budget by two and and i try to make clients commit to the bare minimalist that they can do for like a prototype so like if the project is like their deadline's two months away. I try to do like a prototype or a spike that's done in one month using say half their budget. And the point of that is because I know they're going to be filling stuff in or there's going to be delays on, you know, from whatever and trying to manage the expectation that like we're aiming for one month. That way you can hit your hard deadline. That seems to work really good. 
and I try to address this in my proposal and give them other options if they want, you know, the whole thing planned out and every feature and all that. So if they do have the ability to change some of these levers like budget, then, you know, they have those options. So what what I tend to do, because I end up working on a lot of rescue projects, although I'm oddly I'm doing some greenfield now, um, I work with – the rescue clients tend to feel put upon that they've been abused in the past, and so they're very sensitive to being let down by another contractor. So what I usually tell them in terms of managing their expectation is I'm going to work with you to figure out what needs to be done, actually very much like how you described, Eric. And you put it in something like Pivotal Tracker based on your priority. And just watch how much gets done and how quickly it gets done, and then try it on the staging server. If you were unhappy with the progress, fine, we'll just part ways. All you've lost is the time it takes for an iteration or two. And But on the other hand, if you're happy, and I've never had a client turn me away after a week or two, um, on the other hand, if you're happy, then let's just keep at it. And that's worked very often. Yeah, and I haven't done very many rescue ones. Like I've done some semi ones where it's like there's previous code already there to do. And in that case, I typically, like I said, I still try to start with a small project and I've done like a week, you know, couple hour spike just to, to get an idea. And I think in a lot of those cases, it ends up like, Oh, look, there's so much stuff here that I have to work through. I'm going to be starting off at, we'll say like 33% efficiency. And Mm -hmm. I try to set expectations like, this is how I'm starting. I can go from 33 all the way up to 100, but it's not going to be a you know one day process. It's going to be over the next few months as I start cleaning stuff up, or as I start getting experience in this system, or whatever. I'm going to get better and more efficient. But we should plan for the worst case that I'm not going to. Ha- that's not going to happen. I'm going to stay at 33, and it's it's hard to to tell that to clients, but it's kind of the reality. And I think it's they have to know about it, so it's not a surprise. So you're always stacking up the the tasks you expect to be least efficient on in the beginning, or usually? Um, it depends. What, what I'm saying is when you're dumped into a code base, it takes you a while to figure out things, even if it's like, yeah. you know, you just need to build a basic scaffold model. Well, in a brand new Rails app, that's fast and easy because it's simple. There's nothing there. But in right. one that has 100, you know, 100 models, 200 controllers, you're, you're going to hit dependencies, you're going to hit the other issues. And so doing the same same actual task in the different projects might take you different amounts of time. Okay. So, I mean, it's not even dependencies, right? I mean, I uh, I don't know. It was probably a year and a half ago I had something like this. Uh, had a customer come to me and said they needed some help with this uh, website. They were trying to do something with video. All I need to do is do this one little thing. And it's not trivial. Like, put a modal over a video. So when you click it, you got redirected to a purchase screen or something like that. So it's like, all right, well, let me give it a shot. I'll take a week or so and figure out how far I can get. And then you dig into it. And it's not just dependencies. I mean, third-party encoders and all this other stuff. I mean, that's one thing to deal with. But then if you get into code that's written by somebody that doesn't do things the way you expect them to be done, and you have to dig through all that to try to figure out what in the hell kind of crack this guy was on before you got the code. <laughs> Sorry. That's interesting, too. I mean, so there are a bunch of things that... They can work against you being able to to jump right in. So there's an expectation, I think, going back to a show topic, I, I think there's an expectation by clients that developers are interchangeable and that they yes. had some team or some guy 
and did some work and for whatever reason that guy didn't work but without any consideration for why that guy didn't work the next guy should be able to pick up where the other guy left off and keep going just as fast or faster than the other guy so in, in terms of setting is that I, I think it's an interesting point in terms of setting client expectations you guys try to get a look at the code base first i assume before you do that so that way you have a well, I'm, I'm asking, I'm asking a yes, no question again, but I think you can see where I'm going with it. I, I, um, you know, to, to Eric's point, if it's a greenfield, uh, project, then you don't have the code base to look at. But my, the way I always try to approach is I, I try to educate the client as much as possible about, as much as possible about the problems that I'm solving. And I'm not solving the stereotypical programming problem, problems of math and algorithms and stuff like that. Um, uh, it's just figuring out, well, what is the business process? And so you can sit with the client and say, how does this work? And you can kind of extract a, a model of, of what's going on in their minds for how the software either does work or will work or is supposed to work. And if it's, um, if it's you know, a new code base, there's tons of questions that you can ask. Uh, you can ask the same questions about an existing code base, but you can come back to it and say, okay, well, this is how you've explained it to me. I went and I looked through the code, and here's what's happening. And this is how it's different from what uh, you say should happen. So it kind of gives a frame of reference for the client so that they understand that you're actually working through a business process. You're not just pushing bits around um, and you know they're left twiddling their thumbs wondering, why is it taking so long to just stick some things in a database? Um, it shows them that you you actually have to consider all of the different permutations of how their process works and then go and evaluate if it is existing code, you know, what is it actually doing? Does it actually reflect what they say it's supposed to do? But likewise, you might have a conversation with the business owner who's paying for the work and who you relate to on a regular basis, but then you talk to some other user and the user says, oh, no, we don't use it like that. We do it like this. And so sometimes I find that my job is just getting those two parties to communicate where, you know, the manager um, who pulls the strings for budget and whatnot thinks it should happen a certain way, but the end user uh, says, no, we, we don't do that at all. That's a completely useless feature to me. And, <laughs> and that's... Sorry, go ahead. No, no, I was just going to say. So what I'm what I'm noticing is up until now, we've been we, we seem to be talking mostly about how um, setting expect how we set expectations at the beginning of a project. Uh, I'm curious, uh, how about you started to talk about this a little bit, Jim? How about uh, on an ongoing basis during you know, an ongoing project? Um, you started to talk about it a little bit at the beginning, Jim, but I hadn't. Let's heard. come. Let's come back to that because I don't think. I don't think we've adequately covered this piece yet because I, I like what Jim's saying and I totally agree with it. I mean, okay. if you had sort of best case client engagement from the beginning uh, and uh, Jim, uh, I'd like to hear how you map this out. But so best case, best case client engagement, you get some sort of some chunk of time with the product owner, business owner that explains their domain and what problem you're trying to solve with software and then Another chunk of time to dig through the code and see if the code is doing what you heard the business owner saying and then have the quintessential come to Jesus. This is what I found. This is what you said. How how closely do they match and then go forward? So, I mean, that that's sort of the it's it sounds like the perfect customer engagement from 
an inherited project. And even right. a greenfield project, you're not looking at code, but you have the other pieces to it. Yeah, I think um, at least I, I always try and insert that process. Um, whether or not they're used to working that way, I try to have casual conversations about solving problems together because it forces that it forces them to, to ponder, well, what, what are the requirements that you're giving me? Either you're changing the way something currently works or you're um, explaining the way something should work and it doesn't. I, I try to have periodic updates um, and it depends on, upon, you know, who you are on the team. If you're not a team lead and you're just sort of augmenting uh, development, then you go to whoever your superior is on the project. So you would go to the team lead or the tech lead and say, hey, here's my understanding of what I'm supposed to implement, but this is how I found that it works, or maybe that doesn't make sense. And, you know, I've been on projects where you can actually understand the problem well enough where you can go back and say, you know, they want us to implement this feature, but I see no real reason to do that because it just forces them to click this way and do that couldn't we just short circuit it and and do it on this screen or something like that? And, um, you know, even if the client isn't used to that, I'd rather at least give them an update on a periodic basis. And, and sometimes I'm good about this. Sometimes I'm not, but, you know, gather a bunch of things that have happened over the week. You know, maybe the development team tries to stay agile and the business people say, well, we don't want to, we don't want to touch it, but you can at least send them an email saying, Hey, here's what, you know, challenges we've come across. Here's how we've attempted to overcome them. Um, and at least keep your side of the communication up so that you're giving them all the information you can about solving problems, not like technical details, but one thing that I tend to do with my clients, um, is that they give me some idea, obviously in the form of requirements about what it is they're trying to accomplish. But inevitably, those requirements in one fashion or another don't meet up with reality, either the um, functionality existing app or there are some technical hurdles to overcome. And so what I tend to do is I – frankly, I second-guess my clients a lot, um, not not in a harsh way, but I go back to them and, and, and ask them, well – does you sort of talked about this a little bit too, Jim? That um, your app already does this. You want it to do that, or um, often what I end up doing it, it's it's often going to be a technical problem too. Well, you asked for this, but this might cost an awful lot, or it might be terribly it, it might be terribly complex, or actually no, I believe it's terribly complex. Here are some alternatives. Which one would you prefer? And um, I think that's key to yeah, I mean trade offs. Giving them trade offs is, is I think essential. Absolutely. And, and to second guess, you know, is really, I think, our job, right? Somebody well, hires you. It depends, right? I think it's the difference. I personally think it's the difference between just being a hired gun and being a consultant. I suppose. But I mean, even if you're even if you're on a team and you're doing code reviews, you know, it to me anyway, doing a code review is someone else's opportunity to to second guess some aspect of what you've written or to help you rethink it. So it doesn't necessarily have to challenge everything, but you can play devil's advocate and you can say, well, what if you did it this way and just explore new ideas that you but might not in the have considered context of managing customer expectation, though. Yeah, it, but you know, if if you are a hired gun and you're supposed to sit on development team, then evaluating the code is part it's of part what of you're that. Supposed okay, to, you know, makes sense. Um, but but I think I, I would rather, and I think sometimes I'm I'm probably a bad hired gun because I'm often really 
um, I shy away from startups because I worry very much about their um, the revenue model. Like, hey, it, guess it, what? I have the same problem, but I <laughs> but I work for them anyway. <laughs> and and I I will often say, hey, you're. I had one client, and I said to them, well, you really look an awful lot like Facebook. Are you really sure that you want to do that? Uh, and they said, well, but we want posts and we want comments and we want a feed. And I said, I asked them. But do you think being derivative will make you successful? You know, how many derivative successful startups do you know of? Um, so I'm just giving a real world example that comes to mind. But so yes, I understand what you're saying there. Yes, I mean there's certainly times when you know second guessing that um, you know it could be valuable just for their business alone, but it might at least allow them to make decisions that adjust how they think about priorities. You know, you they might have if a client has something that will make them money, but they really are enamored with some other idea. Um, second guessing it, you can say, look, if if we look at the amount of time that the development team expects to be able to implement this, or if it's just me, you know, if I expect I'll be able to implement this, we can spend three weeks on this feature, which really matters, or two weeks on this feature, which doesn't matter, just because it will take less time to do the feature, the other feature, you might actually get more bang for your buck if you just go you know, a week longer and launch that than doing the thing that you think is awesome but won't actually turn into more revenue. Sure. Um, but I think that's part of being uh, the technical expert on the team. And part of it is being professional, too. Um, Evan says the difference between being uh, something in a hired gum. A, a consultant in a hired gun. yeah. Right, but, I mean, it's just being professional. It's like everything else, right? I mean, it's updating your client on what you've been doing throughout the process, so they're aware it's not, they throw some money at you, you go away, and they don't hear from you until you ask for more money. I think my point was, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I'm just saying, it's just, it's the difference between being an amateur and being a professional. I mean, as a professional, you want to have your client's best interest in mind, and even if you could ride some idea they had and milk them for whatever, a decent amount of money, solving a problem that they don't need to solve, I mean, it's the professional that's going to say, do you really need to solve it? Or do you have to solve it this way? Or could we do something else? Or this option that you want to do is insanely complex. We could do something else that's just almost as good as what you wanted, but you can get it done tomorrow or next week. Fair enough. So I, I guess I've had several clients where they almost seem a little surprised that I have dialogue with them about features because I'm unsure of something that they're trying to do and that I might be, I accept I might be wrong, but I go in there trying to provide what I think is constructive criticism. Um, but I rarely get complaints about that. It's just, it seems that the expectation of clients I, I found in general seems to be that they feel like they're probably hiring just a code monkey, someone who will just churn out stuff and they don't know when they're getting someone or they're not necessarily even looking for someone who will give them a value add, if you will. But I, I agree. I think that's one thing that separates professionals from, from not. And that's and a lot of that is um, the first impression you set with that client when you first engage them and price is part of that. And I guess uh, one of my picks will now be uh, the latest Kazumi's podcast, episode three, something about freelancing rates. We'll put it in a link and that'll be my, Pick, but the idea is, I mean, it's the the whole joke, and I'm sure everybody's experienced it, that uh, you have this idea that would make everything better, and you've told 
whoever should be the person that signs off hundreds of times that this is the way you need to do it. They don't do it. They go out and hire somebody for an exorbitant amount of money. They come in and say the exact same thing that you just did. <laughs> and then it's gospel because it came from somebody they paid a lot of money to as opposed to someone they're not paying a lot of money to and think you're just a code monkey. The perception of value versus actual value, sure. Exactly, yeah. I'm, I remember listening to the episode on, I think it was being agile or something like that. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, I, Eric had some good insight there where he was saying, you know, some of my clients want to have that daily feedback and other clients just say here we know exactly what we want take care of it and they don't need the back and forth and i think you know there's different ways well there are different clients and they all want things in a different way and so i'm curious eric about how you manage expectations with you know different clients you know what do you do how do you change your approach when you know some just want to leave you alone and and have the work just done and others might actually want to have you know regular feedback right so i guess that's kind of like how do you manage like communication expectations typically i'll start off and i'll try to i start off kind of like you know middle of the road like uh it depends on how fast the project is but it might be like you know update a couple times a week you know when i'm actively working on stuff um if i'm not actively working on stuff less frequently and typically using whatever the bug tracker is or just straight email I've had some clients that are extremely responsive with that and are like asking for more things and more things and more things. And so when that case, I kind of then phase into like, okay, they, they want more communication. And so I'll do, you know, maybe a daily summary email or talking with them every week and having like a planning meeting or whatever. But if they're like kind of not replying to the email or taking a couple of weeks to get back to me. And I mean, you can kind of tell like if people are like, oh yeah, whatever you say, that sounds fine. You know, that case I kind of back off on stuff and then, you know, maybe it's a monthly summary or, you know, we meet like every quarter or whatever. And, you know, here's the, here's the objectives we're going to try to do and here's what it's going to do to the business. And, you know, I kind of give, this is my professional opinion and then we hammer it out then. And then it's after that, it's a very low key communication. But, I mean, I, I just kind of try to get a feel for it. And a lot of times I just ask the client, like, how busy are you? Like, what are you expecting communication-wise? Because some people just, they can't get back to you. Like, they're so busy with other things that aren't a project. And so, you know, they just kind of have to adapt. Yeah, I always try to figure out, you know, what what mode of, of communication does the client want as well? You know, some people respond well to emails, others just completely ignore emails and will, you know, phone calls are much better or in, in person meetings. Um, so I always try to look to that too. Like how can I actually best use whatever mode of communication I have to, you know, get their agreement on something and make sure that we're both on the same page. Yeah. I've had, this, I've had the same experience with clients where, it, you don't necessarily know going in what their mode of communication is because it seems like everyone does have one or two that they're better at. Um, the other part that, that I find challenging, though, um, especially challenging, I think you, you were alluding to, Eric, is that some clients uh, communicate more frequently than others because they have varying priorities. Um, and I think it's a matter – I think it's, it's important for us to decide – how much we're willing to compromise too. Um, for example, one of my first freelance clients, he delegated all the communication to a uh, 
a lieutenant, essentially, but a very junior one who really didn't have any authority and had a lot of the responsibility. But he didn't involve himself in the project. The, the project owner was not involved. And ultimately, that, that, that got to the point where we had so many miscommunications because of going through the lieutenant that I just decided this communication problem wasn't worth it. And this, to me, is a anti-pattern for projects. Yeah. And I mean, like, like one of my clients, like, he's just busy. Like, he runs a whole bunch of stuff, like, at his job. Like, he's, I guess, director level. He's not a director, but it's, like, that level. And the project I was doing with him was kind of stuff on the side, more administrative stuff to make things run smoother. So, you know, he's probably putting out fires seven and a half hours out of the day, and so he doesn't have a lot of time for me. Versus, like, you guys were saying... um, you know, if you guys work with startups, a startup more than likely they have this one product, and that's that they're living and breathing that their entire day. So it could be that yeah, they have half their day to sit and talk with you because that's their core offering. So I wanna I wanna scoop back to when Jim was talking about the initial part of the engagement, and then answered Evan's question. It felt like we were in a presidential debate. We told me about healthcare. Yeah, I'll tell you about tax increases or whatever we're going to do. So I'll answer the question I want instead of the question you ask me. <laughs> but anyway, so right. I'm, I'm curious. We want so we were talking about this engagement. And so you you try to insert you try to insert that into the process, Jim, and so I just want to get it clear for everybody that's listening and for me so I can steal it the next time I have to go talk to somebody. But so at what point have they signed a check and given you money to do something for them before? I mean, is there some sort of work product that comes out of uh, the initial session with the client to talk about what the business goals are or what the problem is they're trying to solve? Or is it that's just some cost of doing business you accept up front and you try to limit it for some period of hours and then you go on uh, after uh, that to look at the code or what? I'll give you an example I just did a couple days ago. Um, somebody had a project and they were unsure that their development team was doing things properly. You know, they were unhappy with results or seemed to take longer than, you know, they expected. So I was contacted and they said, we would like you to come and review what we've got. Um, you know, these are the problems that we've been having. And so I took a couple hours um, you know, had a, had a phone call with them for maybe an hour and asked them to send me some details about what problems they were having. And I reviewed their code and their site and kind of took a look around and I gave them a report. And I said, well, you know, the first thing I found is, first of all, you don't have a backup strategy. So turn that on right away. Uh, second of all, you know, this and I would give them a level of uh, like, is it significant or insignificant the level of effort to uh, adjust it? And, I, you know, made it binary like that so it was easier to decide on what to address and discussed, you know, how these things affected what they wanted to do. So they may have problems where, for example, if it's if it's like a you know a CMS, they just want to edit their site and things aren't working properly. What level of effort does it require them to do manually versus the amount of money they need to spend to fix something to remove that level of effort? So you, um, I would have a discussion, you know, so I'd review their code, review what they're doing, and then go back to them and discuss the findings. They'd have a chance to look at them, but then we'd have another conversation. And usually then it moves forward after that. But even so, on projects where I haven't done that, I've been hired to come in and help kind of do the same thing, like on a rescue project. And they explained to me, here's how it works. I'm already on board and I still have to do evaluation of their process. You know, um, I haven't done the last Greenfield project I did was probably two years ago at this point. Uh, actually, yeah, 
or maybe I finished up a year ago. Uh, but my, you know, brownfield stuff is is usually where they explain this is how it's working and these things aren't working quite right. Uh, and I just try to get as much plain English conversation done about what's supposed to be happening um, because the client always has this this understanding of how things should work that's slightly different than how it actually works or how it even can be done. And I just try to keep that kind of conversation going. So, you know, over a week or two weeks or something, depending on their level of involvement, if we're doing like a scrum type of process, I try to do as best I can to at least inform them, well, here's the challenges that we that we came into. This is how you described it working. This is how we found it actually works. Or this, we, we think it might work better if you do this. So for me, it's an ongoing process. And sometimes I have to have that conversation. Other times I don't. You know, it, everything works as expected or, or, you know, is going along as planned. Um, and the updates are, you know, reasonably small. But I try to make sure that uh, we address the issues before we actually start hitting any code for it or or if we're in the middle of hitting code. You know, like if you're doing a daily stand-up meeting with a team, um, I've found success in just killing off the what I did yesterday uh, part of it. Just say, what do I have to face today and what's blocking me? Because what I did yesterday doesn't really matter unless I'm actually doing something today and related to it. It, it shortens things up, and it's nice to be able to get the client to focus on what needs to be done. So if there are blockers, I could say, hey, you know, we found that this doesn't quite work right. We need to have a conversation after this meeting. That That's generally what I've done, but I try to keep it very informal. Yeah, it sounds kind of like a, what, it, what I think a couple of us were describing earlier, just giving the client regular updates and, and telling them about the, the trials and tribulations that come along, and keeping them informed, uh, giving them options. At least that's what I heard. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, options for sure, because it's always, you know, balance of things. You know, we could do it this way. It will take longer. But, you know, how bad would it be if we just have the users do all this stuff manually until we have more time? You know, like we have bigger problems. So let's solve those problems instead of fixing this minor bug to save people, you know, five minutes of work. Okay, so um, let, let's change, take a different tact in this. Uh, we'll no. What? No, you've, got, you've got five minutes left, Pat. Five more minutes, so I trump your next topic. You can do it when I'm gone. All right, fine. All right, so trump. this is the last thing, and it, yeah, okay. <laughs> this is the last thing, and it's, I mean, definitely relates to setting expectations. i got to lead through. I want to hear the answer places. to my question from you, but anyway, go on. All right. Then you can answer mine quickly, and I'll try to answer yours quickly. So uh, it's the typical, uh, I've been working on a project, I need to transition to a new developer, 70% done, 80% done, some percent done, and I need it delivered by November. That's awesome. That's actually very much what I wanted to talk about. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, I mean, it's the same thing because, I mean, and this goes back, I think, to the cog in the machine that you're just replacing. It's, I think it's 70% done. It's taken X long to get to 70%. I can extrapolate the next 30%. Oh, no, you, you can't. <laughs> oh, I know. I'm saying client thinking here. Yeah. It took, it took two months to get 70%. You can do that out of the 30% in one month. I mean, software is linear, right? <laughs> no, I mean, it's just interesting that the, that lead came up and this topic came up very, very apropos, I guess. Apropos. Well, I, I guess I'm not sure then if you were asking exactly. I wasn't. I was like, just... Well, you don't know exactly what I was going to ask, but 
what I was burn. No, I'm kidding. Um, what I was thinking was how we talked about the beginning and middle of contracts, but what about setting expectations for the ending of the contract, which sounded kind of like where you were going, transitioning off. You know, I was answering that. I really didn't ask a question. I just made a statement. But I oh, fine. You congratulate. Good, good statement. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I appreciate your appreciation of my statement. So, 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 what do you guys do when you are trying to wrap up a project um, in terms of setting a client's expectations? And I guess there are two different ways to to wrap up a project: is either you're leaving before it's done for whatever reason, or you're you're finishing it and delivering it. So, in the fall, I guess the, well, the second one is easier, right? Yes, or, it is. It seems to be easier because there's a clear path. I mean, you've met whatever the business goals were at the beginning and you've got a product. Maybe there's ideas for future improvements. Maybe there's some sort of uh, follow-on work that you need to do. Uh, uh, not follow-on work, but there's some maintenance you want to provide them. Uh, you're going to support issues that come up in production for the next month or two months, whatever it is, because you guarantee your work or whatever the scenario. But and I think that's some. Uh, it's a much nicer scenario to be in. But I've only I've only had one project in recent memory that has ever ended so cleanly and so nicely. They've all just continued on or continued, but the frequency of which I interact with a project has just dropped dramatically. But they haven't ended. I had one client that we did exactly what they wanted. It was some customization to Redmine to give them a dashboard for a big screen to do the big visual chart stuff, and it worked. They got their 1.0. Uh, we said, we'll contact you. We'll follow up in a couple of weeks, make sure everything's going good, see if you have any improvements for version next or whatever. And that, it sort of stopped. I don't know if they... That makes sense. I mean, it's easier when the scope is narrow, right? Yeah, because I, I had a, a project of kind of medium size to go write a recommendation engine, but the goal was kind of obvious. It's write a recommendation engine. When I was done with that, they had me do some other work, and I was fine with that. But um, the goal was obvious. Once I had that done, then everything else was just gravy on both sides. And you'll be talking about that at RubyConf, right? Yeah. And um, ostensibly, I'm going to try to open source it. Um, the, the client's willing to work with me on that. I just have to you know, do it. <laughs> But thanks for that, Jim. Looking forward to seeing it. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, but I mean, I agree. The narrower scope definitely helps. I mean, when you've got a big project or some ongoing project, right. it sort of seems to never end. And that beeping, if you can hear it, is my next call. So i got to drop off, guys. Okay. Thanks, Have Jeff. Have a great rest of the show. Talk to you later. Yep. Well, I hate to put you on the spot, but Eric, we haven't heard anything from you in a bit. You got anything to add? Oh, i got lots to add. We're just waiting. So I was just trying to think while Jeff was talking, like, the vast majority of my projects fall into two groups. It's either, one, we need either this feature, this set of features, or this business outcome. And it's very, well, it might not start that way, but it ends up, it's very clearly defined. And once the work's done, the project's done, it's shipped, you know, whatever they do, their QA, all the acceptance tests, and it's done. Like, that's... It's a very, like, this project started, this project ended. The other kind of camp a lot of my stuff runs into is the, I want to say like maintenance, but maintenance isn't the right word. It's more like I have an ongoing contract with a client for, you know, a year or two years or three years, and 
that contract says I'm going to be giving them X amount of my time, and ah, they can okay. use that on whatever. You know, so in, it's very in very clear constraints. Yeah, and so like for instance, like one of them was like uh, whatever twenty hours a month for X amount of dollars per hour. So it's you know in a way almost fixed bid. If stuff doesn't get done in a month, it gets pushed off into the next month. And so it's very, very, very lightweight, agile of like, okay, it's October. What's the most important thing we can work on right now? That's what we're working on. November, we'll review that and see what's the most important thing then. And it could change. That, there's no clear done as far as like software-wise, but there's like, okay, the contract's over and it's either are you going to renew or not. And so mm-hmm. there's still the clear calendar, like this is when it gets done. And we go into if that's the expectation, and it seems to work really good. I mean, I've, I had a couple of them that were going for, I think, like three or four years straight, you know, and some of them were like, we want as much time as you can give us type thing. Right. So that's, that's kind of how... I set expectations at the end of the contract. It's actually, I set it at the beginning, and so the ending is actually relatively clean. Well, that makes sense. Um, interesting. So the ongoing contracts, these are, I assume, production systems? That, well, actually, no, right. You said that you're just working for the client, and it could be in varying capacities, not necessarily on any one app then, right? For the most part, it's for one app. I mean, most of it was either Redmine or Chili Project, and so it's one app. It's all, it's always production. Like I, I might do some prototypes, but the goal of the prototype is to prototype something that we're going to put in production later. Like how we're going to, um, technically accomplish something. But yeah, it's all production. I've, I guess one client I started out with working on, you know, app A and then we kind of added in like an app B and an app C later that weren't into, like there's no real, you know, they weren't like service apps or anything like that. It was a completely separate scope, separate project. But that still kind of just fell under like, hey, Eric, you have this bucket of hours for us. We're going to pull a couple hours for app B and app C. Okay. Yeah, I've, I guess I've had a, a bunch of different ones because when you described um, the way that you've been working in your second type of contract, I suppose one of my clients, I, I started out that way where it's, you can that we could use you on we have a production system and we could use you for up to x many hours adding features and or fixing bugs um so to that extent i i was sort of staff augmentation but i was also mentoring their team too but then and then i tend to get i've gotten a few of the just go build the greenfield go build this um for for me app and hmm i'm trying to and then rescues are maybe a whole different special ball of wax yeah and i mean like we've said many times like i i tend to work on different projects than everyone else on here most of my stuff like my so i have some new stuff that's actually different but most of my stuff has been internal business apps they're right. all in production but they're not like mission critical and they're not they're like, not customer facing yeah, yeah exactly and so it's almost all of my apps are very much driven by the business goals and so they're very like we we're spending too much time in this area. We need to automate stuff, or we need to you know get clear visibility into this process. And so, having that kind of business objective means it's I can really clear up the requirements. Versus I, we want to build a startup and launch this public site and make millions of dollars. Right. So I think it might be relevant because I don't know if we mention it too often on the podcast. Um, for instance, I tend to do mostly startup clients. Um, I guess it's because I get my clients mostly through having spoken at, at some Ruby conferences. 
Um, and Jim, how what kind of domain would you say yours are typically in? My, my, well, I don't know. I've had you know, I've, <laughs> okay, I, I've had small Ruby? projects like mom. <laughs> Ruby, <laughs> exactly. Hey, Ruby, <laughs> does that answer? I've had small projects, you know, and but I mine also span, you know, either plain design or front end development and back end development. Um, but uh, I've I been mean, pulled into. Well, I've been pulled into uh, government contracts. Like I did a a DC public schools contract that was a long running uh, contract. I did uh, association work, you know, like a large nonprofit organization. I've done startup um, projects. So I, I haven't really found uh, like a, a niche clientele, um, but I do often help, you know, augment teams. So like a, a, a a consulting company might come to me and have me be a part of their team mm-hmm. um, rather than a, you know, um, rather than working directly for a client. Exactly. That's yeah. Cause I, at the t- at, right now, anyway, I'm just one person. I used to used to have a partner and a employee. And so we would uh, kind of be primes on, on things, but now doing it alone, it's much easier to just go in and help a team, you know, address something and they've already got their project managers in place and sort of uh, they well, take care of some of the details. And the reason I, I, I mentioned, the reason I asked this question is I just thought it would be useful for the audience to get a sense of where our perspectives are coming from in terms of describing customer expectations. Because I, I wonder how much difference there might be across domains, perhaps. Oh, I think there's a huge difference. I mean, I've I've done some... We're startup stuff and I've done some like, what did you call it? Team augmentation or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't do that that often. I don't enjoy it. You know, it's, I, whatever. Um, but, and so I've seen like the whole project is different, not just like, you know, we're using different code, but like the feel of it, the way stuff happens. I mean, it's, I, th- I think they are a completely different beast. And that's why like I bring it up a lot because, you know, whoever's listening, like depending on what they do, mostly like if they do a lot of startup stuff, some of the advice that I have might not work for them at all. I mean, and that's, you know, I, I work with established businesses, people who are doing internal stuff versus right. Evan, like you do a lot more startup stuff. Your advice might be better for them. And, you know, it's, it's hard. And that's why it's, I kind of like the different perspectives we can bring because it's, you know, because they're varied and it's good for all of us to get a bigger perspective. Yeah, and you can always cherry pick stuff too. I mean, yeah, you absolutely. Know. And I think Jeff's he's has a lot of government contracts, right? Doesn't isn't he's, that? Yeah, I wish he was here. I didn't know that. Um, he does because me and Jeff talk a lot outside of this, but he does huh. a lot of startup stuff. Oh. Um, he does some. Actually, he's done I think considerable amount of team augmentation stuff and a touch of government. I don't. I haven't heard. Much. I mean, we don't know exactly who we work for. It's just kind of like the size of projects or that sort of idea that we get. I mean, like in my case, I've done staff augmentation for startups uh, because usually, really, the staff augmentation for startups often is a rescue, often is a mentoring effort. And that's partly because, I guess, of not necessarily how they hire me, but some people do hire hire me specifically to be a mentor. But it's also how I tend to approach it. 
and that and this is also very much a matter of setting customer expectations that a lot of the time they, they they'll bring me in maybe just to add more code but I want to make them better because I don't want to be cleaning a bad code all the time I would like to help make them more productive um so I'd like to add value at a bigger level so there's um I guess you could say there's a little bit of a dance that I I've been learning <laughs> it's uh no not exactly a dance if you will but uh there's um People skills, I have them. No, I'm kidding. But there are people, there are definitely people skills involved in, in, in trying to, um, walk that fuzzy line to, um, influence clients or their teams toward better practices. Yeah, and but it's management expectations that way. Like, what is it? Not, not politics as in, like, democracy, but like, politics as in the organization and how communication flows and all that. Like, yes. those kind yes. of skills. And that's, yeah. that's why I don't do a lot of team augmentation. I, I'd say 90% of my projects I'm solo with the client working as the PM or me being the PM. And that's, that's where I've done a lot of my work. And a lot of that is because I work closely with them and like, okay, this feature is not going to be good for your business. Like not that the feature or the technical problems, it's all like helping their business. And I found with a lot of the staff augmentation, you kind of get you you leave a lot of the consultant role and get more into code monkey on the keyboard role and so that you know I business is my passion and so not being able to tell a client like you're making a business mistake here is really hard i i still do that even when i do staff augmentation i guess it's to say that i try to change the rules when i'm when i'm brought in for staff augmentation but i guess it's also cuz i'm never brought in really just for staff augmentation yeah um, i mean, think it's like the level of it cuz with some of my projects, I'll, like, from day one, like, you know, once you get all their stuff, I, I would tell them, like, you're making business mistakes here, like, you're, yeah. you're doing stuff wrong, whereas staff augmentation, you kinda, you gotta build up some yeah. political yes, weight before you can build say up that. credibility. Yeah, no, you're, you're exactly right. Um, you can't go into, you can't, <laughs> oh god, Eric. Um, you can't go into an existing team and just say, yes, you're wrong. No, that, that, well, you can. It's foolish because then no one will listen to you. And, and, no, it is very much a matter of building up credibility, which takes some time. Although, it, and it's, it's worth adding, even when you're, or maybe even especially when you're brought in as a consultant, they want you there to mentor, even though that's what, how they brought you in. It's rare that everyone buys into that. And so you have to, you're given authority, but it's not earned authority. And, and so it, it's, it's also, it can be difficult to live up to that expectation as well. Well, I mean, it's also when you're coming in as a consultant, you're giving them advice. They don't have to take that advice. I mean, it's probably in their best interest to because you're consulting and on something you're an expert on. And sometimes that might leach over into like you're giving advice on their development stuff. They want to take that advice, but they don't have the experience to do it. And then that's where you kind of help like do mentoring or help with the implementation. Like maybe you'll pair with someone to show this is how you do some of the stuff like actually code wise. And that's where it's I wouldn't. I would say at that point you're not actually acting as a consultant. You're acting more as like a trainer. You're training their yeah. team now. Right. Yeah. There's um. This is probably way late in the podcast to be raising this issue, but there's also you know the client who won't take your advice, who wants you to just be a code monkey, and you know it's that difficult client. Um, maybe you care about the project, but you don't care about the people that you or don't care for the people that you are working with or their behavior. But I. I at least whenever I run into that, I always go back to my initial approach is, well, I just have to start asking questions. And so you can kind of use the Socratic method to 
um, help them along and figuring out where the problems are. If they won't listen to you explaining what you've found, you can at least ask them questions to help get them, you know, down the right path of figuring out whether or not they can ship something on a certain date or within the budget or, you know, whatever it may be. You know, to be honest, like, and this is because I have, I come in more, try, try to come in as a consultant more than, you know, the person typing. If they don't take my advice, especially if they hired me for that, I get rid of them. Like I've let clients yep. go that, ref- not that they refuse to take my advice, but they refuse to believe I was giving them advice and that I was helping them. And I told them like, look, if you're going to pay me to do stuff for you and I'm not helping you, there's no then sense in having like this. It. Yeah, there's, right. this relationship is not going to work. And yep. I say, we're going to cancel the contract. We'll go our separate ways. You know, best of luck on what you would like to do. But I'm, I can't be a part of it. I mean, there's, my opinion, there's too many projects, there's too many clients, there's too much code out there that I can actually help. I don't want to help people that don't want to be helped. Well, and that's, I wonder if we could have a whole different topic or discussion in this one, but that's one of the, the tricky things about consulting. If you go look at Gerald Weinberg's book, every, you know, we're hired because there's a problem and the problem's usually a people problem. One of the interesting situations I've encountered is when you're hired to solve a people problem, but the truth of it is when you work towards solving it, they don't actually want it solved in the first place. Yeah, well, to be honest, a lot of, not a lot, sometimes consultants aren't hired to solve a problem. That's what they're said. They might be hired to be a fall guy. They might be hired to, oh, look, we tried everything, but... There, you have to also admit sometimes you're it's a consultant at face value. You're not hired to actually solve anything. You know? Well, it, I, I I don't I tend to take the I tend to take people at their face value for better or worse. Um, when they bring me in to when they bring me in to provide advice or insight, um, they don't have to take it. No, but if they're not taking any of it, then I agree with you. I, I I've had this on projects where. I don't think I'm being useful anymore, so I'm 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 going to leave now. It doesn't necessarily go as well as that, but it, but I've had that once or twice, um, and I don't remember where I was going with this beyond that. So speaking of which, well said. Yeah, <laughs> thanks, Jim. Right. Um, so or did you have something else, Eric? No. Okay. So having said that, why don't we get onto the picks? Let's start with Eric. So Jeff picked it too, but I was actually going more meta. Um, but Patrick McKenzie, um, his company name, I guess it's Calzumius. I'm probably not even pronouncing it right, but it, he's been running a podcast for a while, well, a while, like a couple episodes. He's been doing a, a couple, I guess three or four recent ones on more freelancing consultant stuff and pricing and marketing. Really good, really long, but it's worth it. Um, I listened to his latest one last night and I think I sent myself like six emails of things I need to do. So if if you haven't subscribed to that podcast, subscribe to it and also subscribe to his blog. He has a lot of a lot of great advice on marketing and like business stuff, but it's around software. So he, I mean he's coming he's approaching it from a programmer perspective. So it's it's very easy to take and put into a freelance business if you're a developer. Okay. Jim? The um the first one I found out about actually at a previous Ruby D camp. Graphics card status. Uh, oh yeah, GF, GFX.io, um, and it's this little tool that you can load onto your Mac uh, for a laptop that will switch between using different uh, graphics drivers. So if you were, 
you know, unplugged and using battery, it'll use the lower power usage option, or if you're plugged in, it'll uh, switch uh, to the higher one. And it does things automatically, you know, depending upon what application, you know, Chrome, for example, will always, for some reason, use the higher powered one. And there's even a recommendation that you use Safari when you're going on battery because it uses the less less power intensive uh, graphics card. Anyway, this thing allows you to switch back and forth. The one thing that I did find with it when I had first installed it, I thought, oh, I'll just try this out. And I went to give a presentation at a DC rug and I couldn't, like the projector wasn't working. I didn't know why. And it took me like someone I, you know, had to restart and someone had to do their presentation before me because I didn't know what the heck was going on. And uh, anyway, I just had to switch the driver and it worked fine. So there's that. And then uh, I don't know if uh, anybody had seen Uncle Bob had written a blog post uh, back in September called The New CTO. And it's, it's a great um, conversation starter just about how projects are managed and how the development team, it's just basically like a short story of how the development team is responding to things that were said and how, you know, how are they going to get through writing tests for all of their code? How is that even possible? And how are we going to deliver on time? So those, those are my picks. Okay. Um, I just have one pick and that is um, not my, not my iPhone five, but Verizon LTE has made my life so much better. Um, I've been, I, I tend to work outside the house maybe a third of the time, just for variety, and sometimes on travel. And 3G just does not cut it a lot of the time for, especially for trying to go look up docs on the internet, because I'm, I'm always surfing API docs all the time. And the 4G is breathtaking. It's about as good as being at home pretty much wherever I am as long as I have access to the LTE network. Uh, I'm not advertising for Verizon, but their LTE network out here on the Eastern Shore, considering I'm kind of in the middle of nowhere, is shockingly good. So uh, I've been very happy with that. Plus, it makes a lovely backup for when my cable company fails miserably and my internet connection goes out. So uh, I guess that makes a wrap for this show. And uh, next week, I... I don't think... Did we go through um, Jeff's picks? Oh, right. Sorry. Um, okay. Jeff had alluded to them very briefly um, earlier in the podcast. But Jeff had a particular um, podcast on... Um, Calzooming as podcast number three about growing consulting practices, and then a link to I haven't looked at this one yet. Yeah, um, internet, internet business passive income with software. A mouthful of a title. Uh, it sounds like uh, passive income from running an internet business, I guess. Um, so give those a listen too. And then he just threw into our chat room anvilformac.com. And what is that? I guess it's a uh, Mac app of some kind? Well, it's a beautiful menu bar app for managing oh, sites. Right. That's, no, I, I saw this. This is for for using with pow.cx, uh, uh, which is – I, I use I use that sometimes at home too. It's um, – right, it's powered by pow. So it's not a front end for pow. I think it, it actually wraps pow. Um so I haven't started using it yet because I've been using Pow a ton lately. But excuse me, but the UI looks pretty nice. And if you're not, if you haven't tried Pow, it, it's I don't maybe I should have given it as a pick before, but it's it's awfully handy for running an awful lot of web apps locally on your machine, um, just for development purposes or testing purposes. 
Okay, so unless there's anything else, I guess we'll make this podcast – podcast, I can say that – wrap, and um, next time we'll – I hope we'll have Chuck Wood back so that way I'm not moderating. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. Bye. All right. Thanks a lot. Bye. See ya. See ya.